Hello and welcome to Additive Insight, your source for news, interviews and comments on the latest 3D printing and additive manufacturing intelligence, brought to you by TCT Magazine. I'm your host, Sam Davis, and today I'm bringing you the latest episode of our Innovators on Innovators series. This time, GE Additive Operations leader Stephanie De Palma catches up with Protolab's engineer Eric Utley to look back on their collaboration with fashion designer Zach Posen. The partnership saw the creation of several fashion pieces which all relied on 3D printing and were all modelled at the 2019 Met Gala in New York. Throughout the episode, Stephanie and Eric discuss their memories of the six-month-long collaboration, giving detailed accounts of how the 3D printed garments were produced. If you like what you hear, don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. For more additive insight, head on over to tctmagazine.com where you can subscribe to the print edition of TCT Magazine and our weekly additive insight newsletter for free. So Eric, it's been about two and a half years since the Met Gala project, and I don't think I've actually even really spoken or talked to you much during that time frame. Now that things are much different in the state of the world, I find myself kind of looking back at some of those exciting times in 2019 and just thinking about how, how things are different now. What are some things that you maybe in reflection have taken away from the Met Gala project? Things that were challenging or great just memories of the experience? Yeah, what what was really fun with that one was that, uh, you know, I'm typically dealing with like engineers and uh, design people, manufacturing people day to day. And Zach and his team were just a completely different uh, breed of people, you know, just very um, artistic. And and uh, what I really liked that, you know, what I felt like our common ground was that we both of all of us visualize things in three dimensional space. And that was really fun watching his team and Zach you know, kind of come up with these ideas in three-dimensional space. And then they had this additional dimension where they not only had to consider how it looked standing still, but they had to consider how it looked when, when a person was moving um, as well. And that was all very insightful, you know, for me as a guy, mid-30s engineer, you know, fashion is fashion. And I didn't really have much exposure to that. Um, and, and it was just fun really uh, seeing a, another world um, like that and and really finding the common ground working together that was that was my favorite part I have to say that was my favorite part as well and especially thinking about how different communication is today from when it was in 2019 I think a lot of the things we learned of communicating with Zach and just the the language barrier so to speak between engineering and manufacturing compared to fashion um, really gave me some good tools in how we communicate in, to t- in today's world. What types of changes have you had in how you're interacting with customers and still talking about 3D printing and what Protolabs has to offer? Yeah, so since that project, uh, I, I've been working with our, uh, our internal processing and we really overhauled how parts flow through our system and also our customer facing website changed drastically. So, you know, that's really changed how we interact with our customers is that we, we, we have a online interface that um, basically you can upload a file and get an instant quote. And that's usually how I'm personally dialoguing with the customers and also screen sharing, pulling up, looking at parts uh, with customers um, and, and trying to find uh, you know, the right fit for their, their application. Um, but yeah, that, that's changed uh, really quite a bit in the last two and a half years. So what were you doing before the, the Met Gala project? So before the Met Gala project, I was involved in the consulting business, the engineering consulting business branded AdWorks um, within GE Additive. And that was really the whole premise of how we started this collaboration with Zach of teaching customers about just the technology of 3D printing, about engineering design and how to take a vision that you have in your head and create it into 3D digital space and then make it a physical reality with with the machine. Um, That was really kind of what I was doing before. Um, Since the the Met Gala, one of the things that we found that's been tremendously helpful was the entire story that we went through with Zach of taking somebody who kind of knew the... um, 
the premise of the technology, but wasn't obviously super technical. And then how we communicated what the technology was capable of doing, the design journey that we went on of taking those things that were in Zach's head and making them a reality, and then being able to show the physical end result of what we had at the Met Gala. And what that's done for us is it gives us not only that whole design story, but to also talk about the manufacturing process of how during that project, you were so great, Eric, of printing all these coupons and different finishes, because that was important to Zach to see and touch and feel what was in his head and how it could possibly be in real life. Um, and just the whole value of the manufacturing process and then the options that you have to change your design from what is in a 3D CAD model to what it would actually come out out of the printer and after post-processing. What kind of takeaways has Protolabs had or been able to use this engagement in relating to their process or their customers? Yeah, so it was a, a different sort of project uh, for us and really I learned a lot about juggling three parties you know you had us and GE and and Zach Posen and uh, and then you know us really kind of finding a, a, a path forward on that that project that all of us could could fulfill and like like you said learning from that project um, you know maintaining the timeline was uh, was a struggle for that and and good planning really paid off on that project and and leveraging risk mitigation um, as well. And it was kind of fun because I, I felt like I was on the opposite side of the fence for once. Usually I'm the one servicing the, the product developers and the people trying to push these products out. And now I'm in that seat, uh, feeling that pressure, feeling that heat of, oh my God, we got to get this in the next week or two or the project sank, you know, or, or our timeline's going to get pushed or we're going to have to make sacrifices somewhere else. And so, you know, we're rapid prototyping, we're risk mitigation. So it's like, do we want option A, B, C, or D? And it's like, well, let's just print A through Z and, and see what, what, what comes out on the other side. And, um, and, and that, was, that was fun. You know, like you mentioned the pedals, you know, I remember we, you know, uh, I was working with Sarah from GE and, and Zach, and we were like, how thick do we want these pedals to be? You know, because you go too thick and it's too heavy and it's clunky and you go too thin and it's too, it's too delicate and it's just going to break. And, you know, we ran prototypes to test it. And I remember our first pieces were about eighth inch thick, like right at 0.125 inches. And we felt it and we said, all right, you know, we can go a little lighter than this, you know, when we, we shaved it down, shaved it down. And, you know, we looked at the math, basically those pedals, if you, if you thin those pedals out by the width of a sheet of paper, it was going to take a pound off the whole dress. So even just shaving that tiny little bit, extra bit, you know, would make a significant difference in how comfortable and, and you know, how, um, how well the model can move in it. And so, and I felt like we dialed that in really close <laughs> to the edge in the end. And, uh, you know, and it was just kind of funny. It's like, you know, we're, we're doing the same thing aerospace engineers are doing on a rocket, you know, but doing it on a dress. And uh, so I thought that was hilarious. I don't know, Eric, if we ever shared with you during, during the process, as we were going through that light waiting and kind of iteration of how those pedals would fit. So Sarah and Shannon, who both worked on the project from GE, um, they used to have to, they, they tried the gowns on themselves to a certain extent. And we would put, we would put the pedals kind of around us and think, how does this feel? How could we move in this? And then we'd come back and they would make some adjustments to the model and send it to you and say, well, we tried to take some weight out in these couple of areas, or we changed the overall shape because we just don't think it's going to fit and we'll be able to move quite like we thought. So that was one of our behind the scenes um, moments, if you will, of everybody trying on the different the different items just to get a, a real life experience of, of how somebody could possibly move in these in these clothes. Yeah, I was going to ask you about the uh, the cage uh, or the chest piece for for the rose gown because I wasn't involved that much with that particular component. Was that one printed with uh, e-beam electron beam, if I remember? Oh, the undercage. Yeah. Yeah, so that was pr printed with um, the e-beam technology. So I believe we printed it in the Q20 plus um, machine with titanium. And we went like round and round of the best way to design that because even though titanium's lightweight, it was still really like a big thing of weight to have to carry. 
Um, and so we went round and round on the different attachment methods of the pedals, the best way to give Zach a little bit of modularity because we knew he would be very used to being able to shift and move um, fabric in a way to get the exact aesthetic that he wanted. Um, but he wouldn't be able to do that with the 3D printed pedals so much. So um, those are really the critical requirements of what, into, what it went into that cage from a design perspective. How could we get some modularity in the placement of the pedals and then take as much weight out of it as absolutely possible, which was why we went with that really organic looking shape, almost camo style with those big chunks of, of pieces missing. Um, but even with the cage, size of the machines became a limitation. So we didn't have a machine large enough to print the entire cage kind of as a single piece or two pieces we would have needed. Uh, so we had to really print them in very small sections and then bolt them together. Yeah, I remember seeing online uh, someone mentioned uh, kind of an armchair engineer. He said, oh, I think those pedals are held on with uh, neodymium magnets. You know, <laughs> and he's like, I can tell just by looking at it. And, right. uh, I, you know, I loved, I loved seeing that. That was hilarious. We thought about magnets at one point. Um, that just didn't seem quite as uh, foolproof as, as the bolts did. Right, right. I remember Zach, he, you know, like I said, he, he thought of, he thinks of things in movement, you know, in a way that we typically don't in, in 3D printing. And so he wanted initially for the pedals to kind of have a flutter to them or to move a little right. bit. And, um, you know, we knocked around ideas of uh, printing in like a, a TPU lattice or something to kind of act as a cushion and things like that to get that movement. But uh, it was just going to be such an engineering challenge, which is, I think, and we were really concerned with the pedals clinking and clacking together to eventually, you know, do that. Um, but it was still, um, you know, really impressive that it came together the way it did. So you don't have to answer if you don't want to, but what was your favorite piece that we printed? Uh, you know, the, the rose gown, I think, was my favorite. Um, you know, the initial idea was to make it white, and, uh, and then Zach thought it was going to look too bridal, and, and, and that makes sense to me. And then, and then the decision was to make it red, um, and Zach had this idea of like a mylar balloon, like a metallic red paint. And there's some sculptures out there done that way where they're, they're made to look like balloon animals. Um, and, and the, the way those are done is this is highly polished metal with a, with a candy clear coat over it, just like you would a hot rod car. And, and, but then it's, then it comes in as polished again, because you got to really lay that on and then, and then, and then polish it back down. Um, and, you know, we explored that and tried making that work and, and it just wasn't working the way we wanted to. So we looked at like a uh, color shifting paint. I, you know, I talked to our, our custom finisher guy. I'm like, what's the craziest paints we got access to, you know, and he, he, he found this book that he had given us a long time ago of all these like uh, color shifting paints. And, um, and they're super expensive, like $1,600 for a little pint of it. Um, you know, we end up using at least two pints on the the rose gown dress, and um, and it had this really stark look that I feel like just isn't captured in the pictures. Like you really got to see it once again in movement to really get a get a feel for it because it would just capture the red and and it would almost look almost like chocolate brown in some light or like a like a fiery orange. And uh, and Zach really liked really ended up liking that. And I think it was kind of like if he knew that was an option on the table at first. Um, that would have done it, but, but yeah, that was, that was, uh, you know, a great example of, you know, someone from an artistic side saying, I wanted to look like a metallic rose, you know, like, I, I like, I just, <laughs> I thought it was so funny that someone came to me and it says, you know, if, if someone were told me I was going to be printing a, a, a human sized metallic rose, um, you know, I wouldn't have thought that would have happened. Um, <laughs> You know, but uh, yeah, that was fun of, you know, Zach would tell us, uh, you know, I want something to look, initially he was knocking around ideas of a, of a, of a slime green, you know, it to look like, uh, like nine, and I, I think he was thinking, picturing green. 1990s Nickelodeon lime green, he wanted to look like splashed, you know, or something, um, or at least that have that color and that, that look. Right? The slime green mm -hmm. color yeah. that he was thinking of, yeah. Yeah, and, uh, and, and I mean, we had some good ideas for it. I mean, we, we were going to make it look just like, like Nickelodeon green, lime green, you know, 
Um, but we ended up changing that idea right at the last minute to, I'm sure to match the color on the dress better. Um, but I, I missed that part of the project, honestly, that, that was, that was fun doing that, that really hardcore problem solving of, uh, you know, trying to uh, use the tools in your toolkit to, to get what they're looking for. Part of the project that I really miss is how we were trying to capture Zach's vision and take that and make it a reality, but that also gave us the experience to live out beauty in a completely different way, which as an engineer, you don't ever think about that really in relation to your job. Um, but the experience of using our engineering skill sets and CAD tools and analysis and, you know, manufacturing methods and how that related to translating um, Zach's vision into something that was beautiful. That was a really cool part of the experience, um, at least for me, that, that I don't know that we'll get to experience again unless we have another fashion project. Yeah, and that, uh, uh, I'd say in a good year and a half after that project, I, a lot of fashion stuff crossed my desk. Uh, you know, they would they they would come across and uh, and they just weren't a good. Fit. We've done fashion stuff before, the Zach Posen project. Uh, you know, smaller items and things, and then um, some of it came across afterwards. And and um, yeah, I'm looking for that next kind of fun marketing um, project like that. That that kind of leverage. Uh, leverages the artistic side of things um you know it feels very gloves off gloves off you know when you when you do projects like that um i was going to say like you know working in 3d printing in our industry is is fun because it's like we see trends you know like i mean i've been in it for 13 years how, how long have you been in it now the industry? um since 2014 so seven years in 3d printing oh, okay yeah um, you know, it's just fun kind of seeing the trends uh, kind of come and go. I don't know if you've noticed that, like, uh, um, you know, you kind of come and see like unmanned drones, you know, be, a, be an industry. And then, um, you know, uh, like back when smartphones started to become popular, you see start smartphone accessories and things like that. And then now, you know, you mentioned you like working on stuff with artistic sides of things. And uh, something I've seen a lot lately, I've seen in the last years, a lot of like green technology stuff kind of coming across now. So there's been a oh, lot of uh, like 3D printing projects around, um, you know, clean energy, you know, electric, electrification of cars. And, um, and it's just exciting to see like 3D printing's influence on that now, you know, really starting to pick up here in the last year. Yeah. So, you know, in terms of like trends of what I've maybe been seeing on the metal additive side, we've seen a much larger shift in our customers from using 3D printing as kind of rapid prototyping or in the development space to going to some type more of a scaled production. Um, so in aviation, we're seeing more and more applications that can be 3D printed on jet engines. We have medical customers who are taking different orthopedics into some type of a full rate production. Automotive industry is gaining more and more traction um, with some type of a scaled production solution for 3D printing. Is, is any of that type of work um, impacting Protolabs in any way? I, I know that you have a lot of different machines and serve customers of different industries with different needs. Has there been any trends in just your business model? In the last three or four years, it's uh, the production activity has picked up significantly as a centering technology for like seven years now. And I remember about five years ago, our, our CTO at the time, he called it a, a technology that's a hammer looking for a nail. You know, he said you had this really versatile technology, but there just wasn't many engineers out there who really knew how to leverage it and, and uh, knew the benefits of it. And, you know, that's something that GE really pioneered, honestly, you know, was, you know, adopting the technology and, but also kind of promoting knowledge of how to leverage the technology. And in the last uh, couple of years, you're right, I've seen a big uptake, you know, uh, medical and aerospace particularly um, are adopting 3D printing really heavily and you're right I feel like it's trickling into the automotive space um, now as well um, we also print in plastic and multi-jet fusion and that's been really successful with um, with printing like low volume production plastic parts um, I had a podcast a while back uh, with a with the, one of the owners of a company called OVR 
and they actually uh, have a product that's like an add-on to VR that actually adds a scent component to it. So you can be like walking oh, cool. through a forest in VR and like smell the pine on a tree or, or something like that. And I just think it's such a, that's a cool project too, because it's just such a great intersection of, once again, you know, like we were intersecting art and, and engineering, right? They're, they're intersecting like your scent and all your experiences and everything associated with scent and technology. And, um, and that's just such a, such a, just a neat idea. What sort of uh, projects are you working on nowadays? Um, so again, the big projects that GE um, Additive has been working on is really that maturation of customers from um, finding their application to taking it into some type of scaled production. From a machine standpoint, we're really matching the technology of the machine with the needs of the customers. So we have our M line. Uh, that we're getting to uh, ready to release in 2022, which is a larger format quad laser machine that gives you the capability of the M2 in terms of uh, fidelity and the properties out of it, but at a much higher speed, obviously, in a quad laser system and with a much larger larger size, 4x four, four the size of an M2. Um, similarly, on our EBM side, we are getting ready to release what we call the Spectra L. Um, which is one of the next generations of the EBM machines, again, geared at being able to go to higher temperatures to allow different uh, material offerings and to be able to get better productivity out of those materials as well. So I think those are a lot of the things that we've been working on. And then obviously BinderJet, which is the big, the big, um, you know, uh, latch into the automotive industry, just with the speed and the the automation that can be put into that machine. So that's where we've really been focused on. And we've taken the approach of letting the applications and the needs of the customers help us align our product roadmap and technology to those types of needs. I see. Yeah, binder jet's really interesting. I think that's going to be uh, a really popular technology that's got a lot of area for growth on it. Is your opinion, uh, from what I've heard, that it's uh, primarily for production and not really for prototyping? Um, because, the, you know, you have these trade-offs with DMLS technology that it seems that DMLS is more accurate and has better mechanical properties, but finer jetting can make parts much faster and at higher volume. Is that your sense of it as well? Yeah, so we have several customers that we have these um, early on engagements for the technology with, and we spend a lot of time developing like the application in the process. But in that journey, there was never really question about um, using the technology to find which application. The applications, I think we'd already been able to identify really well for the capability of the technology. Whereas on laser, it might be a little bit different of a story and people still want to see, oh, could you print this for me? And then let's do a business case analysis. Um, in BinderJet, it's much less of that prototyping and we're going straight into developing the process around this application. Today's episode is sponsored by 3D Systems. Here, Sam Green, 3D Systems Professional Printer Category Manager, discusses advancements in polymer materials to increase AM repeatability, productivity, and part performance. We know that 3D printing has been moving for some time now from a predominantly prototyping tool to a manufacturing tool. And the real end game really is for 3D printing not to replace traditional manufacturing, but to support that, adding breadth and depth and agility and complexity to where it's uh, really required. SLS is a great contender for producing uh, plastic, true plastic parts, thermoplastics in PA12, nylons. However, the drawback of many thermoplastic technologies has been the process by which these individual layers of the parts are melded together. So large thermal discrepancies can occur typically across either a single part where you display different mechanical properties at one end of the part and different mechanical properties at the other end. And the same is true if you have a batch of parts. But what we've really done, we've created the new SLS 380 3D printer. And this is designed to deliver consistent and repeatable parts. So we've installed eight individually controlled heaters. And then we've installed a high-resolution IR camera that's able to take 100,000 thermal data samples from within the build chamber 
every second. So the system's algorithm is able to quickly identify any areas where there's high thermal gradient uh, or very low thermal gradient, and then it immediately adjusts the duty cycle of the relevant heater to remove that thermal discrepancy and ensure a more consistent sintering process. And ultimately, this uh, temperature stability creates significantly higher part yields and ultimately a more efficient process and even lower part costs. You guys have talked a lot about advancing the science and one of those areas is photopolymer resins. Can you just elaborate on how you're leveraging that to deliver production grade part performance there? We've been able to develop a series of novel patented chemistries and these have really opened the door to the first true production ready photopolymers for additive manufacturing. So we started this process for the figure four 3D printer with our tough black 20 material. This along with other production grade materials that we've released since then, all these materials are tested to demonstrate that they can retain most of their mechanical properties, typically up to eight years indoor and two years outdoor. 30 years ago, 3D Systems invented the SLA 3D printing uh, technology, uh, which uses a vector laser to scan and cure resins in a vat. In contrast to that, the figure four, it still uses a vat, of course, but it replaces that laser with a projector-based imaging system that cures a whole layer at a time rather than point by point. So the great advantage of this is, of course, uh, speed. Figure four is unique in that it is a non-contact membrane technology, which means the part does not come into contact with a transparent layer at the bottom of the print tray. So the end game has always been to port over the revolutionary material advances we've made from the projector-based figure four to our SLA range, such as the Pro X800. Back in July, we launched the first of these materials. It's called the Acura AMX Rigid Black, a high-strength uh, production-grade SLA material with really good environmentally stabilized uh, properties that can withstand years of indoor-outdoor UV and humidity exposure. It's ideal for large one-to-one scale automotive, consumer durable mounts, frames, jigs, fixtures, or internal frames in things like such as uh, white goods. But taken together, we now have a very powerful solution mix when it comes to resins. If you need small batch quantities of tens to hundreds of thousands of production grade plastic parts, the figure four is an excellent solution. And now if you need large one-to-one scale, large production parts, we now have our SLA platform with the first in our range of Acura AMX materials. To learn more about long-term resin performance and industrial scale SLS workflow solutions, visit mytct.co forward slash 3D systems pod or mytct.co forward slash pod SLS. Maybe back to the topic of the Met Gala. Yeah. You know, obviously we worked we worked behind the scenes a lot together. Um, and we were both there on the day of the event as well. And then some of the events that happened after the gala with the um with the different panels and interviews. What was maybe one behind the scenes moment um from your experience with the Met Gala that you remember? Um I remember um being in with, with Zach. Zach's team uh, developing things and, uh, you know, like me and Sarah were there from GE and, um, and I remember um, Simon, he was the head of uh, VP of development um, for, for Zach and, and his team were there. And I remember they were, they were working on the, uh, so the early, the earliest iterations of the rose gown were pieces of construction paper. Um, you know, they were cutting construction paper and, and, putting it on and it was just like like putting feathers in a hat kind of you know they were just kind of slotting in the feathers and moving them and getting this rough idea and they were uh blasting um Bette Midler show tunes as they were doing it (laughs) (laughs) and uh and that was uh you know and I'm just sitting here you know you know I just I just felt like a fish out of water in that moment but it was fun you know it was invite they were just joking and 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 everything you know and and uh that was and i was like yeah you know here i am you know right off of fifth avenue you know with some fashion designers putting together a dress listening to bet midler you know sit belted out and uh and that was that was probably the one one thing in my mind that i i remember most that's awesome so so you you dealt a lot with zach and his team too is there there's something memorable that that you can think of yeah, one of my most memorable experiences was the first time we dressed Nina. Um, so Nina wore, <laughs> Nina Dobrev, she wore that bustier, that clear bustier. And 
that was so challenging from a design standpoint, not that the rose gown wasn't challenging, that was challenging too, but because this was going to fit directly to her body and we had to get it right. I remember Sarah just agonizing over the photogrammetry results and shaping that bustier around the form and was it going to fit and what were we going to do if it didn't fit and what kind of risk abatement plans could we have? Um, so I remember the first time that we dressed Nina in that in that bustier. And I think Sarah and I were holding our breath like, oh my gosh, is this going to work? Because we have no other choice. It's May, May 4th at this point, I think, and Met Gala is May 6th. Um, and then Zach and his team, I was so impressed with when we were doing the fitting of how they adapted that little dress. I don't know if you remember, she had like a little dress under the bustier. Right. It's kind of like a shimmery ish color. And they kept adapting the size and the shape of that dress to fill out every little nook and cranny, especially in the skirt area and created that beautiful glowing, like flowing look. Um, that was a memorable experience. And then Nina's reaction after we got the, the dress on her and she saw herself in the mirror for the first time and just how, how great she looked. And she, you could tell that she felt great wearing that. Um, that was really cool. And then she actually started this thing of singing Barbie girl, um, over and over. She's like, I feel like a Barbie girl. And then she kept doing that over and over and dancing around in that bustier. And that was just so fun. And also just a huge sigh of relief that it all actually worked. <laughs> yeah. You, you reminded me when you were talking about that, about like, you know, one challenge of that project was, you know, we're trying to interpret these real world 3D shapes, you know, a person's body or, you know, once again, Zach would make these forms um, and say, you know, you know, because that, that clear dress, he made that dress in cloth first and said, this is what I want. Right. And so now GE had this really challenging project of we got you got to take that physical dress and make a 3D printable CAD model out of it. And yeah. And I remember, you know, can you talk through that one more? Because I'm, I'm trying to remember all the routes we went through um, to, to get to that 3D design, you know, ultimately yeah, so getting I it to actually, a 3D CAD. So I actually drove that um, fabric that he had. So he draped over a mannequin and came up with the shape of what he wanted that bustier to look like, particularly about the folds in the skirt. And so um, when we were in New York going over that concept with him, I drove that mannequin with that, with that dress on it to our facility in Niskayuna, where our global research center is. And we used their blue light scanner to try and recreate a 3D image um, of that dress exactly as how Zach had draped it. And I had to like FaceTime with Simon and Thomas and they were like, you got to fluff the skirt up a little bit and the fold, the fold kind of came in and they were showing me over FaceTime how to make <laughs> sure the folds in that skirt were just perfect so that we could do that blue light scan because that was very important to Zach of just how those folds were creating motion in that, in that garment. Yeah, I remember the, the headpiece we did for uh, Julia Gardner. Um, you know, we, you know, once again, they, they prototyped that with some wire and some drawings and things. And we got the CAD file for it. And, um, and Zach wanted to look like gold, you know, which was challenging too. It's like, okay, how do we make this thing look like gold? And, uh, we ended up printing it in plastic and multi-jet fusion. And then, um, you know, we tried gold plating and then also brass plating. And uh, we ended up going with brass plating because I think it just matched the coloration he was looking for a little more, but I was kind of pat myself on the back there because I was, I was like, I'm pretty sure this is the world, this is the world first. Like no one's brass plated a multi-jet fusion part before, <laughs> you know. Well, um, really it, well. Yeah, yeah, it was polished and everything. It looked, it looked, uh, looked pretty good. But I was like, all right, I got that one, that one world first under my belt there because <laughs> <laughs> no, no one's brass plating things like that. I remember one of the challenges that um, we kind of had to work on together was the overall size of the files that everything we we kept having to talk about light weighting of the design and not just the physical weight but also the file size of the weight and just the making sure that the, the designs were watertight and so that they'd print correctly and all the fixing that we had to do of the stls and i remember 
it being very late some nights and we'd be sending files to you and you'd give us the call of like, oh, well, we gotta, we gotta make some changes here or um, the file size is just too large. What else can we do? Do you remember any of that? Yeah, absolutely. And luckily I got a pretty good um, skill set in cleaning up files, you know, getting them printable in that sense. But I remember the first uh, few times, yeah, I would kick it back to GE because, um, you know, once again, you're just dealing with such organic designs and the CAD files are big. And so, you know, that that's kind of comes with, with the course when you're working on files like that. Um, you know, but after we, we, we did get into a rhythm there after a while, I'd be like, okay, I got artistic liberty too. You know, <laughs> I'm going to, I'm going to clean these up and get, get these, these printable um, for, for that. And, and you're right that, um, you know, we were just running into file size limitations, which is just uh, kind of the Achilles heel of 3D printing with those STL files that they, they define these really organic shapes with a series of triangles and it just blows up the file size um, for those. And, and it gets to the point where, you know, it doesn't really matter the amount of processor or, or memory you have, it just can't slice it. And, and then even just trying to manipulate those files and look at them, um, you know, it, it really drags, drags things down. So yeah, that was kind of a, a learning experience too. Um, you know, I've dealt with other kind of large file projects before, but you know, I mean, you're talking about each petal of the dress is a large file in of itself, right. much less the whole the whole dress itself. I um, remember how yeah. near the end of the project when like we had firm deadlines of when things needed to be printed because they physically wouldn't have enough time to get to Zach's office before the Met Gala. And um, I felt like we got very good in the weeks leading up to that really critical time frame of um, the designers at GE knew, knew very well um, exactly how good you were at STLs. And we used that to our advantage of sending you a file that you then were able to kind of clean up and make into something that was manufacturable so that we could you know, try and get as much of this, this out the door. And Zach at that time was still asking for samples because he hadn't made his final decision about slime green or purple <laughs> um, for yeah. the palm leaf. Yeah, I definitely got pretty familiar with like Gantt charts there toward the end because we really had to schedule it out and hit these timelines um, across the board. And then then you always had to have some sort of fallback back plan, you know, like on the rose gown, it's like, well, we could go back to, to being white, I guess, if we don't have time to paint it, you know, and that, that was the, but, it, you know, that was, impressive with that one was um that it went so well you know like i mean we were cutting it close but there wasn't ever really a uh um you know a moment where we had to sacrifice i mean you know we, we you know i mentioned the um you know we didn't have the pedals move but but beyond that i mean we we did basically what zach wanted you know with these um we didn't really make a make really any sacrifices in it um, just, and, and we cut it right to the wire. I remember one of the like heart stopping moments for me um, was this is the week before the Met Gala. We were packing everything up at the GE site. It was over the weekend. We came in to pack up um, all the pieces that we'd received and we were driving them up to New York. We were leaving Monday and we were driving them up to um, Zach's studio in New York. And there was a mishap with the um, bust of the rose gown and somehow the back pedal got sheared off and it broke. And we sent it, I think Sarah called you, Eric, and was in a panic of this broke, we can't get it to come back together. This is the whole like, you know, bust and she's supposed to actually wear that during the dinner event. Like, what are we going to do? And you're like, just send it back to us. We'll we'll take care of it. And so I remember taking it to UPS or FedEx or something and getting it back into um, Proto Labs. And then you expedited, shipped it to Zach because we didn't want to tell Zach what had happened because we thought he might freak out a little bit. Um, and then you had it there and ready and waiting at like Tuesday morning when we were starting to put all the pieces together and it looked like completely repaired. <laughs> Yeah, I remember I I remember getting that phone call. It was like on a Saturday, you know, yeah. and and I'm like, "Uh-oh, GE's calling me on a Saturday. What is this?" And uh and and yeah, Sarah and Shan uh uh were um Sarah was very upset and and I honestly started laughing 
because I, you know, like I said, this thing had gone swimmingly up to this point. We didn't have a single build crash. We didn't have anything breaking shipping. You know, any of the things that could have gone wrong didn't go wrong right up to the last minute. And I'm like, oh, of course that would happen. You know, but, you know, like, but luckily we, we had just enough slack time there to get it sent back and repaired. Um, yeah. So, so it was, it was down to the wire, but, but yeah, that one was really close. So Eric, we were talking a little bit about some of the new things in terms of technology coming out of additive and trends that we've been seeing in, in our customers. Um, we also know that Protolabs recently purchased an X-Line um, from GE Additive, really around this premise of we're seeing the customers need larger parts um, that are 3D printed. How have you been seeing those trends at Protolabs with this need for larger parts? Yeah, we actually have uh, two X-Lines now. Um, which is really exciting. We have one running Inconel, which is a super alloy for high temp applications, and then and then aluminum, you know, for kind of more general purpose lightweight parts. Um, and it's been very uh, successful and very exciting. You know, it, it feels, um, you know, like we're very much on the cutting edge of of manufacturing. You know, you're building these these. I mean, I mean, it's like you throw around the words and it just sounds ridiculous, right? You know, we're metal centering. Uh, a nickel super alloy to make a, a a rocket booster and then second you know heat treating it and secondary machining it and there's really a lot of complex process that goes into into them and then you get this you know really um, high value sophisticated piece of metal at the end of it um, for that and that's that's fun to to see that process but the the X lines are um, are huge you know it's fun because like in pictures you know at first i'd see it in pictures and i'd say oh okay this thing's about the size of like a 13 passenger van right and then i see it in person and i'm like okay no this is more like u-haul truck right this thing is is a huge machine and and the chamber is huge you know it's um about 800 millimeters long like it looks like you could fit like a i, I picture like a inline four engine block from a car you know could could fit in that that build frame. So it, it's really fun to see just uh, really large metal parts and, and just pushing the envelope of that technology. Um, you know, earlier I had mentioned uh, green technology, you know, we're seeing a lot of uh, kind of renewable energy projects and things coming up on it. And then aerospace projects with, with rocketry, um, you know, DMLS in general seems um, very popular with like unmanned drones. And so, um, you know, seeing a lot of that activity, but um, you know, the, the large frame, you're, you're, you're really leveraging that reduction of assemblies, I think, too, you know, and, and something I've thought about before that, that, that applies to 3D printing in general, but, you know, say you have a machine like the M2, that's like a 10, about 10 inches square footprint, right, and you kind of say, oh, okay, we can build a part that's 10 inches now, right, but you can only build one at a time, so if you want economy of scale, really, the largest part would be more like five by five inches or, or five, five inches or less in one dimension. So you could at least print two at a time, right? And get some sort of economy of scale of, of something like that because it, it, the gains are just so great. So, you know, you look at the X line that that's like an 800 millimeter machine. It's like, yes, we can make an 800, one single part that's 800 millimeters long, but it really increases the, the cost effectiveness of things more like in the 10 inch frame that would typically be made on the M2 um, one at a time. And so, you know, and, and it doesn't take much, maybe five or six copies for it to um, start becoming more economical to print it on the X line. So it, it's just great kind of seeing it, the technology evolving and then, you know, pushing that, that cost down, you know, that, that's once again going to kind of open up new applications for the, for the, for the technology. What have you guys been seeing in terms of material trends? Have you noticed any sort of shift of um, maybe aluminum F-357 was really popular and now there's a switch to a different aluminum or to 718 customers are coming with more 718 needs or cobalt chrome. Have you seen any changes in material needs over the past few years? Yeah, it's been very um, uh, uh, industry specific, right? So like Inconel is, is, I wouldn't say exclusively, but very much used by aerospace and rocketry. Um, because of its high high heat temperature tolerance and there's there's been kind of some knocking around of like different alloys within Inconel and then I have seen cobalt chrome used um, for more rocket rocket engines 
as well, just uh, kind of interchangeably with Inconel. Um, you know, something like our 316 steel is a very common material that we run. It's just a very good workhorse steel you can use in a lot of lot of applications um, for things like that. You know, we do run uh, that the aluminum, which is a ALSI 10MG. It, most people, if you know it at all, you know it from casting. And um, and I have seen interest in uh, 6061 aluminum. You know, aerospace industry is just so familiar with 6061 uh, aluminum that they want to print out of that. And then the last couple of years, I've seen some powder suppliers offering 6061 um, coming up from that. And um, you know, it's fun just kind of seeing the um, uh, the nit the more niche applications. You know, people coming up saying, "Hey, we really want this custom alloy." Um, for this custom application, and it's cool that DMLS uh, can support that. Um, you know, on the plastic side, uh, you know, once again, multi-jet fusion is really popular with uh, low-volume production plastic, and um, and you know, we see a lot of uh, people wanting like ESD-safe materials, fire retardant materials, um, you know, things like that 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 would really push the envelope for production. So I think that's probably right around the corner. You know, for the industry that has kind of more plastics to become more available on those powder centering processes, that uh, that you'll see more and more applications kind of grow there as well. What what sort of uh, applications do you do you see on your side? Is it still primarily medical and aerospace, or do you see kind of other industries kind of growing and taking up more of the of the additive space? Um, so I would say that. Um, Automotive, aviation, aerospace, and medical are definitely the three industries that have been fastest to adopt 3D printing and use it, again, as a more of a manufacturing method um, and not so much as just R&D or for development work. I will say that we've just seen an explosion, I feel like, in the past couple of years of universities investing in the technology. And they started off with like an M-Lab because it's small and it's compact and, and relatively inexpensive. And I feel like universities now are really turning into these research hubs that industries are, are leaning on to help develop either some parameters for them or their applications for them. So we've seen more and more universities buying M2s, buying our EVM machines and really kind of building out a full suite of additive technology into that university. Um, so that's something I've definitely noticed over the past few years in terms of the applications that our customers are using. Um, again, just the, the general trend that people are more and more comfortable with the technology. I feel like we've really gotten past that phase of what is 3D printing with the with most customers and with kind of the industry in general and are now talking more about what else can I do with 3D printing. Um, and so customers are finding more and more applications that are, you know, a little bit tighter tolerances or that's the wrong word to use, but are a little bit more stringent requirements than what they were maybe uh, first comfortable with, with the technology. Yeah, it, it's definitely interesting seeing, um, seeing the, the trend of that. Like, like you said, it used to be 10 years ago, I had to explain what 3D printing was, period, you know, and now, um, now you see engineers coming out of college and they have a bias towards 3D printing. You know, 3D mm -hmm. printing is actually going to be their first go-to in terms of, and and, and it's, they're really only going to explore other processes if they can't 3D print it, um, which is uh, which is great for us <laughs> in the industry because we can, you know, we're the first stop and kind of the the first look at it. But you're right, like uh, you know, it used to be really just prototyping, and uh, really that consolidation of assemblies is is really strong. Um, you know, especially on really complex equipment like air, aircraft and, and surgical devices and things where, where you just have to source a bunch of pieces from, from all sorts of different, you know, vendors and then, and then assemble it together that you're really reducing that, um, that overhead and that paper trail um, for all that. We had an aerospace customer who was making a part and, uh, you know, this thing was small, about the size of a golf ball or so. And it was originally, you know, something like 17 pieces that had a spring in it and, and all these things. And they were able to print it as just a single piece. And, uh, and, and for them, it was like, uh, you know, I think it, like the per part cost was about the same, honestly, 
you know, between printing it and versus injection molding a whole bunch of things, but then having someone put it together. But they said, this is a no brainer because I only got to write one PO and order this thing. Whereas before I'd had to order from five different people and then they'd all come together and assemble and then, and then they'd have to, you know, then they got to buy from that guy and things like that. So, so they said, you know, we want everything to go this way. We want everything to be these kind of as printed sub assemblies as much as they can. Um, because it just makes their life much easier in that supply chain. Yeah, one of the things that I always teach customers is additives good at a lot of things, but if I had to bucketize it into four main categories, it would be weight reduction, part consolidation, thermal management, and supply chain efficiencies. And I would say that over the past few years, you I've really seen applications from customers kind of going back to those fundamentals of what is additive good at and selecting very good and intentional products to be able to be 3D printed. We've seen some customers come back and say, I don't care about my weight. I don't care about my, my thermals. I care that I can no longer source this component anymore. And I can't, I can't deliver things because I can't source them, whether it's on some piece of an aircraft that's incredibly old and the supply chain just doesn't exist anymore. So I love that customers are using the technology in that type of a manufacturing efficiency sense. And then also just on the application side of a lot more systems thinking and really in the designs themselves, you see people embracing like simple things like diamond shaped cutouts to take weight out or integrating tubes into walls um, so that you don't have support structure that you're removing and it's still very lightweight. Um, seeing applications where you really use additive for thermal management because it's one of the things that it's so great at just with the surface area alone. Um, I've been very encouraged just about the overall um, maybe knowledge of, of, the, of the broad industry and the consumer base and how to use 3D printing. Yeah, so what, what excites you about the 3D printing industry that you kind of think is probably around the corner in the next two or three years? Yeah, I think that as we're going into a larger and larger format of additive technology, and we've seen that um, from, from multiple different um, companies. So we, we know that SLM reduced their 12 laser machine. We're getting ready to re re uh, release our quad laser machine. We have binder jet coming. I think as the technology is really growing um, and demonstrating that it's capable of more than just R&D, that's what's really exciting to me because I think that opens up a whole host of new applications that when we went from a fuel nozzle that was just super cool that we were 3D printing a fuel nozzle to thinking of larger components on an aircraft engine that you could print to thinking outside of just even aviation, what else can be printed? I think it really opens up the doors and opportunities and that's exciting of what are people gonna come up with next that can be 3D printed? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, I definitely see the technology. I mean, it, it just marches so steadily year to year, you know, and you can really see the trend of, you know, once again, just more materials available and the printing times um, getting faster and faster. And, and I agree that kind of that low volume production is kind of the, the next frontier for, for 3D printing. And we're already there in some industries and some, uh, some are getting there um, for that. But uh, that's, that's what's exciting is, is the adoption of the technology. So, you know, at first, it's just an awareness. People know what 3D printing is and, the, and the core, like you said, the kind of the core concepts. Um, but we're starting to see engineers really uh, go beyond that. You know, like, I mean, that's a, that's a, that's a powerful skill set as a design engineer. If you can take a part, take a, like, say, an 80-part assembly and reduce it to one and, and, and understand printing to make it printable, um, you know, that's, that's a skill set that was very rare just a few years ago. Um, that now we're starting to see, you know, more and more engineers across industries, you know, really getting the most out of, out of 3D printing. And like you said, the fact that we have um, students coming out of university that are already trained about the technology, already know some of the fundamentals of how to design for the technology, it's really critical of, of getting the next wave of applications um, into, into 3D printing. And it's really exciting to see what they're going to be able to come up with. Thank you.